This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Slate's Jim Newell says the first thing you got to know about tonight's Democratic presidential debate is that it is Joe Biden's to lose. Still. You're starting to see a lot of the campaigns who thought he would be gone by now just because of, you know, his history of, shall we say, verbal flubs, you know, catching up to him. Uh, But it really hasn't happened. And I think they're starting to be confused about what exactly can be done about that. And the answer might very well be nothing. Since Biden entered the race this spring, the other candidates have surged and plummeted in the polls. But the whole time, they have been orbiting Biden. He is consistently the top choice of about 30% of Democratic voters. So when the 10 qualifying candidates walk on the stage in Houston tonight, the real question is whether any of them are going to start generating their own gravitational pull. The reason this debate is different from the others is that we finally have Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden on stage together. He's been a little shaky in the debates. She's been very strong in the debates. It's sort of the last untested variable where, okay, well, maybe if Warren's on the stage with Biden, maybe that will be the thing that shakes his support. But Biden's support, it runs deep. I mean, Joe Biden, if you look under the hood a little bit, like he has very strong support from African-Americans who are going to be very important in South Carolina and a lot of the Super Tuesday states. So that's like a pretty a pretty good foundation there. So, you know, things could change. I don't know, maybe he, maybe voters will pay a little more attention and, and have some doubts about Biden and he'll fall and someone else will catch fire. But um, these polls do mean something showing him ahead. When you think about tonight, when you think about the debate, how does that set the stage for what is about to happen? You know, I've been thinking a lot about what could change from this debate, and I'm not sure the answer is anything. So I, it's going to be interesting to see how this new setup, you know, works for, for each candidate, but I have trouble seeing how it's going to dislodge Biden from the top when he hasn't been dislodged already. But tonight, Biden's rivals are going to try to do just that. So Jim Newell's here to explain how he thinks this fight is about to go down. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This summer, Jim Newell spent some time on the trail with Joe Biden. Jim wanted to see what voters see. Despite the gaffes, the stumbles, the poor recollection Joe Biden can have of his own political record. 
Did you talk when you were out in Iowa? Did you talk to voters about this at all, about like how they responded to Biden and how they thought about him as a candidate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and what did they say to you? It's just I like Joe Biden. <laughs> you know, I've, that's the thing. He's a very he's a very likable person. So people say I like Joe Biden. You know, I've always thought he was great. You know, I think he would just return a sense of of order to everything. And, you know, they're stopping this anxiety over every waking second of people's lives. Um, there are also people who would say, you know, oh, well, I like Warren or I like Bernie or I like Harris, but I don't think they can be Trump. So I guess Biden. So I think those are the, the two strands sort of they're keeping alive. One, that there are a lot of people who actually just like him. He's no quantity. They think he'll make everything normal again. And then there are others who maybe he's not their first choice, but they think he's acceptable and they think that he will beat Trump. It's interesting hearing you talk because as a parent, I'm listening to you and it feels like Joe Biden is America's pacifier and like really America might need to move on to solid food. Like, you know, that's kind of the (laughs) the argument that I don't know, an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders would make. Like, that's what we're doing. But it's like it's really comforting. It feels good to feel like we can fix it. Yeah, it it feels good to sort of. Imagine that you can just go back to the way things were and there'll be sort of a, a de-Trumpification of the Republican Party where all this will be forgotten and everyone will come back to their senses. And I think, you know, Joe Biden himself said the fever might break among Republicans and we, you know, we'd go back to this collegial bipartisan functioning government that maybe never properly existed, but people are very nostalgic for anyway. Combating that is a whole segment of the Democratic Party that feels pretty energized and and on the offensive to try and actually push for major progressive policy goals uh, the next time, you know, they get the opportunity. So you sort of have these two, this pretty big split in the Democratic Party, where you have one who thinks one side that thinks it's it's really time to go on the offensive and go back to these sort of big structural policy making of of FDR or um, Lyndon Johnson. And then you have others who just view this election as as getting Trump is the goal. It's the one thing to be focused on. Everything else can wait. Hmm. So there's a big article in Politico this week looking at Biden's candidacy and the reporters who are covering him. Biden's supporters were basically saying, look, people like him and all of these progressive people who are talking about Biden's gaffes and the things he's getting wrong, they just need to get over themselves. I wonder, do you do you buy that? Are you referring to the Ryan Lizza piece that came out? Really long. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. This long one, it had all these, um, all of Biden's advisors, you know, all pretty much given anonymity, um, talking about how all the reporters covering Biden were East Coast, young, very woke from a lot of elite institutions, sort of from this this super woke bubble that isn't representative of the Democratic Party as a whole. And kind and of like baby a, whiners. Like- yeah. Yeah. A little <laughs> bit. And I, I think that's, you know. I think it's a fair criticism to say that if you're interpreting how things will play and how, you know, whether some of these these statements will will take out Biden, so to speak. I mean, you if you're going to be a good reporter, you have to not just analyze it through the, the perceptions of your own bubble and the own people that you interact with. So I understand why they're frustrated about that. But I yeah, I do defend writing about these things 
writing about moments where, you know, Biden gets tripped up over his words and maybe shows his age a little bit as as newsworthy just because his age is a news story, just as Bernie Sanders age is a news story. Was there a particular moment where you were out covering Biden where something got your attention, where you're like, no, I really think I need to write about this. Like, here, here's a moment where it does seem like this is more than just a little slip up. I mean, I, I went to a town hall with him in Iowa. You know, this was the town hall where he said um, poor kids deserve the same education as white kids. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. And he took six questions. It took him an hour to get through it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying he's senile, you know, but it's enough to it. There was enough just watching him to, you know, put out the question of, you know, is he ready for, you know, not just another year and a half of the campaign, but then four years of the of the presidency. Hmm. And, 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 you know, what you'll get in response to that from a lot of Biden supporters is, well, he's not as as bad as Trump, which, hey, fair point. You know, like that is something to consider if Joe Biden is the nominee. But, you know, he's not running against Donald Trump right now. He's running in the primary field and there's like 20 different options. So it's worth, you know, looking at the whole field and, and, and you know, examining their flaws and examining their strengths. And, and you know, that just that doesn't really make sense to me as a, in saying that you shouldn't write about this. And he's maintained this front runner status from the very, very beginning. So I'm wondering, you know, given he's so likable, what's your strategy tonight if you're one of the other nine people on the stage? Yeah, I don't think that unless he, you know, starts getting in, into it with you, I don't think going after him really directly um, is going to change much, you know. Harris tried and she got a little bump out of it, but then it came back. And I think among some voters, there was a little bit of a backlash to that, thinking that she was uh, being unfair to Biden. Yeah, you're talking about that moment where she really went after him on school busing. It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And it was a really stunning moment, and she had a major windfall of donations afterwards. But it was interesting to watch that fade. I was surprised by how quickly it did. I think um, it didn't help that afterwards, when she was asked do you currently support busing? And she equivocated on it, you know, so it looked a little bit more opportunistic as, as time went on. So I think of busing as being in the toolbox of what is available and what can be used for the goal of desegregating Americans. You know, OK, what's the main strength for Joe Biden right now? The perception that he can beat Donald Trump, that he is the, you know, sort of uniquely sued to do that. That's where a lot of his Strength comes. So if you want to actually take Joe Biden down, you have to prove that he is not electable or that you are the safer choice to beat Donald Trump. And he is. I don't exactly know how to do it. That's why I think that stuff about how maybe he's he's lost a step is potentially the, the best route for people to do that. But, you you know, you have to do that without being too nasty to him on the debate stage. Huh. 
So how are you seeing the candidates hone their message to, you know, sort of turn at Biden while walking this very delicate line of still recognizing that he's well liked by voters they're trying to win over? Well, you've been seeing Elizabeth Warren say a lot like she recognizes that voters want to feel safe in making their choice, but that safe isn't good enough for it. And they should allow themselves to, you know, run with their passions and who excites them the most. I guess it's sort of implied that that would be her in the way that she presents it. And Bernie Sanders is saying some of the some of some of the similar things, like trying to sort of tell voters that it's OK to get out of their shells. I mean, that's how they're how they're positioning it. But, yeah, they're not they're very careful about going directly after Biden. I, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren has mentioned his like his name once when she's saying all this stuff. I mean, you've said that the last untested variable tonight is Elizabeth Warren taking on Joe Biden or Joe Biden taking on Elizabeth Warren. How are we hearing that Joe Biden is going to you know, begin to step up his game and really take her on? There was a story in Bloomberg a couple of days ago about how Elizabeth Warren had done some work for corporations as a lawyer uh, earlier in her career and that maybe the Biden campaign would, you know, go on the offensive about that. Now, if Biden was really going to go on the offensive about that, make a big charge, you know, like right out of the gate, they probably wouldn't have leaked it to the press three days ahead of time. So it could, <laughs> you know, it could just be a, a play to put this on the moderator's uh, radar so that maybe they ask a question about it. Or it could be something that he he counters with if if, you know, she points out some of the the less than savory aspects of his background. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Elizabeth Warren for like a couple decades now has been pointing the finger at Joe Biden and talking about his relationships with big business. So it's interesting to think of him turning the tables on her. They had a a pretty big clash uh, in 2005, uh, in the mid 2000s in general, when Congress was looking at doing bankruptcy reform, which made it much harder to for individuals to declare bankruptcy, which was something that credit card companies very much wanted. And Joe Biden, as a senator from Delaware, had many credit card companies and their employees as, as his constituents. Uh, Elizabeth Warren then was one of the biggest opponents of this bankruptcy reform. And she testified in a hearing where she and Joe Biden really went after it. Uh, and I think that they've had a frosty relationship ever since. So you know, I, I think if they did get into a debate, it wouldn't feel phony the way that maybe um, Harris going after Biden or, or some other candidates who've always gotten along with Biden and are now just sort of recognizing they need to take him down. I don't think it would feel as as forced as that. I think they genuinely have had serious policy differences in the past and, you know, have very different worldviews to a certain extent. There's one more thing that might be on the minds of these candidates as they take to the stage in Houston tonight. The results of a special election that happened earlier this week in North Carolina, NC9. This House race was technically the last of the 2018 midterms. It got delayed after the Republican candidate was accused of looking the other way while his campaign engaged in voter fraud. NC9 is the kind of district that has been reliably Republican. But with Trump in the White House... Democrats thought they might just have a shot here. Both sides poured money into this campaign, and it became this thing that both sides used to gauge their strength heading into 2020. And the Democrat lost. 
Correct. Yeah. Dan Bishop was the Republican who replaced Mark Harris. Um, he was a, a state senator from North Carolina. He is famous for uh, sponsoring the so-called bathroom bill um, in North Carolina that caused quite the uproar there a few years ago. And he ran on a pretty strictly, I will do whatever Donald Trump tells me to do forever if I'm elected campaign. Republicans put in millions of dollars. Democrats put in millions of dollars. Uh, Trump and Pence came down the night before the election to try to push him over the finish line. And it worked. Bishop won by about two points over McCready in, in this district where, you know, part of the reason why it's a little more competitive is that its western edge is in Mecklenburg County, also known as Charlotte, North Carolina. And a lot of those inner suburbs there have been trending blue in recent years and accelerated by Donald Trump. So the district, while still pretty Republican, gave Democrats a little bit of a shot there. And if you looked at the results, Mecklenburg County, that segment of the district, got a lot more blue for Dan McCready. Like he won it by a bigger margin than in 2018. But then the rural areas, those just got redder. So it's another one of these classic districts where Democrats think they have a better shot just because of the, the way suburbs are changing uh, ideologically. But then all the, the rural areas in what's still a pretty gerrymandered district, you know, are just getting Trumpier and Trumpier. Well, it's interesting because like both sides have reasons to have a little glimmer of hope. You know, Re- Republicans are like, well, we won. And the Democrats are saying, well, but it was so close and it got bluer. Right, and right. so I, I wonder what that means looking at this debate tonight about how you position yourself and how you communicate to voters you might want who you may not think you were speaking to earlier. You know, it's just one election. But if you if you were to look at it and think, you know, whose argument in the field does this bolster? It would have to be Biden's probably. You know, you can win over so many suburban voters, but in states that you need to win, like uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you really need to limit your losses in more rural areas. I mean, it's not like Joe Biden is going to win these rural areas, but if he can get, I don't know, 35 percent in a pretty rural county instead of 25 percent, you know, that could be enough to hold some of these states that in in the industrial Midwest. So, you know, it's just always this balancing act of, you know, we can convert all these suburban voters, but how many losses can they sustain in in rural America? That that's that's pretty much the argument for Biden is he can he can staunch the bleeding. Hmm. In the previous debates, we've seen, you know, these sort of litmus test issues emerge. Medicare for all was a big one. What do you think is next? Like, what do you think is the issue these guys are going to be, you know, elbowing each other to talk about and really like put their stake in the ground? Well, I mean, there's one going on right now that's really pretty important about uh, fracking. Um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have called for a nationwide ban on fracking. And you've seen a lot of the other candidates and a lot of members of Congress from, you know, swing districts or from districts where there's a lot of natural gas extraction being extremely uncomfortable with this. I mean, even Tom Steyer, who, you know, joined the campaign a couple months ago and has been pretty outspoken about climate change, has said it's probably not realistic to talk about a total ban on fracking. Maybe maybe there's a suspension of new leases or anything like that. But you can't you just can't ban fracking. It would just do too much immediately to some of these states like Pennsylvania, where, you know, you would need to at least transition to cleaner energy. You can't just 
put the a fracking ban in place right away. And this was really sort of brought to the fore by that seven hour climate forum right, on right. CNN. And you saw Joe Biden get asked about fracking, particularly why he would be taking money from someone who is involved with fracking. How can we trust you to hold these corporations and executives accountable for their crimes against humanity? Right. And he actually had a, um, I mean, a, a bit of a Weasley, but Weasley is good, you know, in some of these some of these situations, because he said, would you do a nationwide ban fracking? And he he sort of said he didn't think it was, you know, politically realistic, which is, a you know, a, a way of saying, well, the Republicans would never let us, you know, when really your own concern is like that would not be a very good thing to agree to on live TV. Tonight's Democratic presidential debate is going to be the first of the year that isn't split into two nights. This is an intentional culling of the herd by the Democratic National Committee. Half of the presidential hopefuls didn't qualify for tonight's debate. They didn't hit the party's fundraising or polling thresholds. But the field is still large. Along with the 10 candidates on the stage tonight, there are more who refuse to bow out of the primary. They're still hoping to qualify for later debates. So the DNC says in October, they might be back to two nights again. You know, it's honestly a little bit of a parody of the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, Republicans say Democrats have all these great intentions about fairness, but then they put a plan in action and it it just becomes a nightmare. And and like they are sort of right about this system. You know, they they don't want to have a kid's table debate. They want to be fair to every candidate. They want to give everyone an equal shot. And then they have this strange system where for the first two debates, you have all of the main contenders on the same stage. You get them there for the third debate. And then the fourth debate goes back to the original system. Like it's sort of almost a, a joke of liberalism a little bit. Jim Newell, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jim Newell covers Washington for Slate. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Danielle Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. We are super grateful for Jim Newell, but honestly, I'm kind of glad I don't have to be watching the debate with him in the same room. He has rules. I just have one screen, but I need to like, I need, I'm very particular about like, you know, when I mute and when I don't, you know, I can't, <laughs> I can't handle someone else having the remote. <laughs> You're like, I need to control the information <laughs> flow. I need to control my environment. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow.